This is the Pathways Podcast. This podcast exists to help you find completeness in Jesus. We come to God's Word wanting to find something, wanting to prove something, wanting it to align to our perspective, our argument, our philosophy, our worldview, even in our own groupings of people when we're divided. We want it to side with us. So here's number two. Let's not create revelation in our own image. But instead... Let's let revelation create us into his image. You see, what you're going to discover on Wednesday night is that as we approach revelation, as we approach this text, as we approach God's word, at times it is like a window and it allows us to peer through that window. And you can look through that window and you can see things that are outside of the the world where you live. That's one of the things that we love about revelation. That word, revelation, means to reveal. It reveals truth, a greater truth, a larger truth that is just outside the window of this world we live in. And it's, and it's above and it's, and it's something that we, we don't normally see, but when we open our eyes, when we open our ears, there's a greater truth, a greater reality that is there. But revelation is also like a mirror. Now, I wake up in the morning and one of the first things that we usually do is we look in the mirror. The older I get, the more it's like, oh. And, and sometimes revelation, when I come to revelation, there's this moment where revelation causes me to look in the mirror and see myself, where it causes the church to come and look in the mirror and see itself. And there's times where we recognize we have things that need to grow. We have sin that needs to be cleaned up. We have sin that needs to be repented of. And so revelation could look like a mirror. It can also function as a window. But let us not create revelation in our image merely to make it say what we want it to say, but rather to recreate us into the image of Jesus. Here's number three. Let's be careful. We don't merely come searching for our headlines rather than searching for Jesus. There is a temptation to sensationalize this book. And I'm just going to put it on the table for you this evening. There's a temptation for every generation, starting with the first few generations who interpreted this book, to make it all about them. When what we discover is that John is writing this to a group of believers in the first century world, and many of the things he's writing had to have had meaning to them first and foremost. And yes, because we have a lot in common with them, that meaning in every generation since them, every decade and every grouping over the entire coverage of the earth has come to Revelation and said, oh, I see there's some things going on in the headlines that Revelation seems to be talking about. That's the wisdom of God. And I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that the word of God is living and active, that even in today's headlines, Jesus wants to speak to his church. So we open up in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and we read the revelation of Jesus Christ. And one of the questions that we have already been wrestling with is, what is it that the book of Revelation is intending to reveal? We've asked the question of approach. So what I want to do this evening in your handouts, or if you're online, we can, you can find these handouts on the church's website, is I want to just start with this question. Okay, so if we lay our agenda on the table and we approach this study humbly on our knees, what is it that revelation, what is it that Jesus, as he gives this message to John, the disciple, and as John writes this letter to seven churches, and as, that this, me- as this message has now been passed on to us, 
what are the intentions of the Spirit speaking today? Here's number one. Revelation intends to reveal, not a surprise here, Jesus. In fact, um, it's one of those things that shouldn't surprise us, but sometimes we just kind of miss it. Like we're looking at the locusts and we're like, Apache helicopters. And Revelation sometimes wants to go, but you miss Jesus. We want to see the politics of the day. We want to talk about the stock market collapsing or rising. But the Spirit says, but you miss Jesus. I just, as a tone of warning, I want to encourage me and I want to encourage you, let's not miss Jesus in this text. You see, we don't merely need a better understanding of Revelation. I understand Revelation can be mysterious. I had a professor, a teacher who taught me, but let's, let's not just make it mysterious, let's also recognize it's meaningful. And I think that the, the approach that we're going to have in this study, as we study this together, it, the, the focus is going to be on your discipleship as a follower of Jesus rather on just pointing in the headlines and saying, hey, look what's going on here. They moved the embassy to this place in Israel. Did you know this happened? Because over generations, we've sensationalized it. 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. It's not 1988. And year after year, we do that same kind of a thing. Revelation chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave, gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, John is writing this to an audience around 95 AD. So when they're reading, God gave them this to show them the things that must soon take place. What do you think that they interpreted the phrase soon take place as being? Something that they're gonna experience in their own lifetime. We can kind of be what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobs. He talks about chronological snobbery. What does that mean? It means that you think that you're living in the center of time itself, that your generation, that your moment in history, that your nation, that your people, that your city, that I don't know, I have three kids, that you are the center of the universe and everything revolves around you. Chronological snobbery. But the interesting thing is this, is that this world is chaotic no matter the generation. The experiences are somewhat of a template that we see happen and a cycle happen again and again and again and again. And so these early believers, the things that they were experiencing, we're, we're going to discover, especially as we dive into chapters two and three, they're some of the same things that we're experiencing. And that as Revelation reveals Jesus, it calls us to discipleship of Jesus and faith in Jesus no matter what. Here's the description I put on this class. It is a clear view of Jesus because we need it in this chaotic world. A clear view of Jesus is critical in our chaotic world. So, no matter what the headlines read, we discover in Revelation that Jesus is still on his throne. Let me give you three pictures if you're taking notes. Three pictures we'll discover, and these will be over the next few weeks. So you'll see these continue to be painted in by the pictures, the vivid imagery that Revelation gives us. Here's the first picture, however, of Jesus. Revelation reveals Jesus as a victorious king. Now that word victorious is very important there. Sometimes your translation will use the word overcome or overcomer. That word is where we get our word, uh, we get the word Nike or the brand Nike from this word. Now, the word doesn't mean Nike as in the shoe, but the word me meant victory. 
someone who overcame, someone who conquered, someone who won. You see why Nike named the shoes Nike. This word victorious describes Jesus, but it also is used to describe our calling to be overcomers. But imagine, if you will, being a people who, who are living in a time of political upheaval. I don't know, that might be hard to imagine. Like imagine a time where you're a people and you're living in a world where you don't know that you can trust, again, regardless of whether this is two years ago or today, you don't know whether you can trust those in charge. Imagine living in a time where corruption and possibly even persecution, where sometimes Christianity seems like it's marginalized, where you don't know as a believer if you might lose your job for standing up and speaking out about your faith, or you might be kicked out of or kicked from. Imagine living, I mean, it seems so foreign to us, doesn't it? No. They lived in a chaotic world that many times mirrors the same experiences that has been experienced by believers. This is not a surprise. But they needed the reminder, Jesus is still on the throne. See, when you look at the headlines, and you have the headlines here, and God's word here, these bring a whole lot of anxiety and fear. What Revelation does is it puts God above the headlines, Jesus on the throne above the headlines, and says, no, look out the window. There's a greater reality that's there, and it's going to be okay. Revelation reveals Jesus because in this chaotic world, it is vital that we can see him clearly. We're going to discover in chapter 2 and 3 that the church is living in a world of where they need this picture. But then, guess what happens? In chapters 4 and 5, we find the picture. God is still on his throne. Jesus has defeated death, and he holds the keys to life. His label is king of kings and lord of lords. He is over any king, over any ruler, over any master. And he will bring judgment on those who oppose him and those who persecute his people. And he's already overcome. He's already overcome through his resurrection. And in fact, in Revelation, if you're looking for a battle, I know they gather for battle, but there's no battle. You cannot fight someone who has already won the victory. So they gather and then they're judged. Because Jesus is the victorious king in Revelation. We'll continue to paint in that picture as we walk through the next few weeks. Let's look at image number two. Jesus is the just judge. So number one, he's the victorious king. Number two, he is the just judge. Now in a world of corruption... In a world where you don't know if justice is going to be something that will be granted to you because of perhaps your position in life, because of perhaps your social standing or perhaps your economic standing, a just judge is a treasure from God. And the people who are being persecuted are crying out. There's a, an image of the souls of those who've been killed for their, their, their faith crying out, how long? How long, O oh Lord? Do you ever look at the headlines and see the injustice in our world and want to pray that same prayer and cry out that same cry? I mean, it doesn't take much of a window to look at the headlines to say, 
God, this world is a place of injustice. And whether I'm experiencing it or whether someone else is experiencing the injustice of this world, God deeply, read the Old Testament, deeply cares about justice. And in this text, he says, I will hear you. And Jesus, he's pictured with eyes of fire. I will see you. And and the spirit is pictured as being everywhere, knowing all things, seeing all things. I will be with you. And Jesus is pictured as someone who comes with a sword coming out of his mouth, someone whose words will bring judgment, but also his name is justice. He comes and he brings judgment, but it's judgment that I cannot render. That's why I leave vengeance to God. I leave justice to God in many cases in this world because only Jesus is able to bring ultimate justice. And in the end, we long for true justice. Jesus is a just judge. Here's image number three. Jesus is a present priest. And obviously by present, what I mean is Jesus is with us as a priest. The word priest, I recognize, can I don't know, it can bring up all kinds of images for us, can't it? But when it comes to the Jewish dynamic of a priest, one of the things that a priest does is a priest makes sacrifices. Here's some interesting things about the imagery in Revelation. We'll talk about it in just a moment. Is Jesus is not only pictured as a priest who walks amongst us and is present with us, he's also pictured as the very sacrifice itself. He is the lamb that was slain for our sin. But the lamb that was slain in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is standing up and walking around and he's a lion. Jesus is the victorious one who has sacrificed himself for our sin. But here's the thing, he's with us still. The picture of Jesus as a priest is gonna be him walking among seven lampstands. These seven lampstands, John just tells us what it means. These seven lampstands represent the seven churches that John's writing to. Why would they need to know that Jesus, like a priest, is walking among these seven lampstands? Because they need him to be with them right now. What does a priest do to lampstands? He makes sure it stays lit. Jesus is there to make sure that our faith remains, even in this dark world. Why is a priest important? Well, because this letter, this book was written in 95 AD and the temple in Jerusalem has already been destroyed in 70 AD. There is no temple, there is not a temple in Jerusalem. The church, the the people who are followers of the Messiah are the temple and God's presence is with them. So these are three pictures that we'll see. Revelation over and over again wants you to look through the window and see in your world, there is a greater reality and that greater reality is Jesus. Here's number two. Revelation reveals the center of our worship, the center of our worship. Now, I love this image. This is coming out of chapters four and five. But as we get to that particular point in the study, what what you'll need to recognize is there's this There's this dynamic where God's throne and Jesus is there and the Holy Spirit is there. God's throne sits in the middle and all of creation, both heaven and earth, encircle the throne of God in worship. And I love this image because the image is this greater reality of what should be true in our everyday lives. Can I be honest how this text is hitting me right now? This revelation that Jesus should be the center. Every night we gather at our family table. There's three kids. I have a chair that's at the end of the table. Uh, I'm not too particular, but this particular chair doesn't feel like it's going to break. Some of our chairs are getting older, so I'm like, Dad's, that's Dad's chair, because I'm not afraid it's going to fall down. But as I've prayed the family prayer at dinner time, 
my prayer has been, God, center us on who you are. All of creation comes and says, worthy are you because you created us. God, worthy are you because we are yours. God, worthy are you. Jesus, worthy are you because you died for us and you rose again. You are worthy. We ask the question. Revelation reveals Jesus, but it also reveals some things. It's a mirror. It reveals some things about us. Is your life centered on Jesus? And not just in like the Sunday morning moment. Like what we do in here is communal and in some ways it is us opening our eyes. It's revealing to us what should be true every other moment in our life is that all of our life should be centered on the throne of God. What we do here on Sunday morning is as a community, we come and we open our eyes, we open our ears, and we're reminded of the fact that our whole life, our whole existence, everything we do is lived out and centered upon God as the creator of the universe and Jesus, the one who has redeemed and remade the universe. My favorite picture of this in the Old Testament is the picture of the tent, and it's okay if you're not familiar with the story, but at the tent called the tabernacle that the camp of Israel was told to put where in the camp? Do you remember? They're told to put it in the middle of the camp. And then they're told to camp in a circle around this tent. Now, I love camping. It's not quite camping weather yet, but I love camping. And they're told to camp in a, in a circle or, you know, kind of a, a formation around this tent. And every time they move, the, the tent goes and they move and then they reset up camp around this tent. What, are, what would that be a constant reminder of? Well, number one, it represents the fact that God is there. God is present with us wherever we go. But as you wake up and you're getting the kids ready, God's in the middle of the camp. You go to work, relationships at work, interactions at work, God's in the middle of camp. Politics, oh yes, they had politics. I mean, you have them in your family. God's in the middle of the camp. Revelation opens our eyes to say, God's still in the middle of creation. That tabernacle is just a picture of what's ultimately true in the greater creation, the greater cosmos. God is in the middle. Revelation reveals this to us and reminds us of this and calls us to acknowledge this, to align ourselves to this, and to ultimately give our allegiance to Jesus who is on the throne in the middle. Jesus is worthy. It's this picture of this greater reality. Here's number three. Revelation reveals the spiritual dimensions. That's a lot to put in that blank. So I'm going to stop right there. Revelation reveals the spiritual dimensions behind earthly realities. Now, I've already illustrated this for you by bringing a newspaper and bringing the Bible and saying, Revelation reveals to us that what is going on here in this world that seems very mundane has something as we look through the window that is a greater reality that is going on. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father depending on your translation, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What's the next phrase? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray, recognizing that there is a spiritual, heavenly, earthly connection. And that part of what we are called to do is to seek his kingdom and his will here on earth as we have centered our lives upon him and upon his throne. And that everything we do here is not just physical, is not just mundane, but is very much at the same time something that is spiritual. 
So in Revelation, what you'll discover is there's this scene shift. If you like movies and you follow scenes or you like literature and you follow the scenes in literature, intentionally, there's this shifting of scenes that happens in Revelation as you study this on your own. By the way, you might want to pick up one of these uh, books in the back. You can write in these and make some observations on the side. Make an observation that says, heavenly scene, earthly scene, heavenly scene, earthly scene. It goes back and forth. Why would it do that? Because we need that constant reminder, don't we? Over and over again. I need the reminder of what is true in heaven. So Revelation 4 and 5, heavenly scene, God's on the throne, Jesus is on the throne. Revelation 6 and 7, but there's this chaos that's happening on earth as these seals are unfolded. And boy, it just doesn't seem like God's on his throne. And yet, at the end of seven, we have this reminder, no, God's still on his throne. And we're okay. We're going to be safe. It's going to be okay. He's going to keep his promise. So over and over again, we find these spiritual components. And and we find that on earth, we might see things as political powers. We might see things as our culture, the seductiveness of our culture, or even just the, the dreariness and complacency of everyday life. And Revelation says, no, but there's something more just on the other side of the veil. And will you see it? And will you recognize it? Because this is war. We are under attack. And yes, there's images of dragons and beasts and prostitutes. And some of that is so that we will do what Revelation asks us to do over and over again and just open our eyes and open our ears to see that greater reality. We'll come back to talking about some of those symbols. Let's move to number four. Revelation reveals the source of our hope. And and let me put it this way. Revelation sometimes reveals the lack of source of our hope as well. In Revelation chapter 18, the people who have put their hope in wealth of what they call Babylon, which really since the temple was destroyed, they called Rome Babylon, somewhat symbolically. You can kind of see the, the connection there. But the people start crying when they hear that Babylon is being destroyed. And the reason is, is because there's a lot of wealth in Babylon, Merchants and sailors, kings and rulers, people who have sold and bought slaves. They cry out one word, whoa, 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 Babylon fallen, Babylon the great fallen. Ah, I didn't do that justice. I mean, that's probably not how they would have done it, right? But the reality is this, is that Revelation not only reveals the source of true hope, it honestly, at times like that uncomfortable mirror, reveals that we might have some sources of hope that will fail us. The cosmos, which seems secure, stars, the moon, sun. What is a picture? Stars will fall, moon will turn dark, sun will turn red. Everything you thought was secure, it's not secure. Mountains falling into the heart of the sea. Wow. But through it all, guess who's still standing? The lamb and his people. There's a question we'll get to next week, in the next few weeks. Who can stand? And what we discover is it's those who follow the one who does stand, the lamb that was slain who stands as a lion. It reveals our hope. And what we discover is that when we have a false hope, sometimes the symptoms are things like worry and fear and even idolatry. And so I want this text, as we study it over the next few weeks, to reveal that question as we experience worry and fear and anxiety because of the headlines, that we evaluate where is the true source 
of my hope. I mean, go back to Jesus. Jesus is already victorious. If we follow him, what can they do to us? He has the keys to death itself. Money? What if they take my money? Have you seen Revelation 21 and 22, what heaven looks like? You're okay. There's seven things that are no more in Revelation chapter 21, 22. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. I'll do with all of those. Just to name a few. No more darkness. Yes. So no matter, the, the most extreme negative headline in your life only ends in you victorious if you're following the Jesus who went to the grave and when all looked like defeat, he was victorious. Revelation reveals the source of our hope and that hope is in Jesus. Here's number five. Revelation reveals the end of our story. Uh, Revelation has what historians call a teleological view of history. I know I just threw that word out there and you're like, please don't do that to me. Here's all that means. Revelation has a view of history that says history is going somewhere. History is going somewhere. There's a trajectory, there's an end, there's a purpose. You realize that that's not popular right now. Like meaning has been one of those things that we go, ah, whatever, I mean, the story means to you, you just go your own direction. Revelation kind of pulls that back and says, no, like there's actually a purpose to this story and Jesus is at the center of it all. Like you realize how exclusive of a statement that is. That no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, no matter your gender, no matter your religious belief, no matter your background, Jesus is at the center of the story And all of creation is centered on him and all of history is centered upon him. And there is an end to this story. And it's this calling to align ourselves to Jesus and to listen to that story. That story that started in the Garden of Eden as God created. As God created and there's this tree, this tree of life in creation. But there's also a snake. And there's also people who at times are not obedient or allegiant to God as their king. And so we sinned. And we experienced separation from God's presence. And the consequences of that separation called the curse. I know you're like, okay, that, the, the third grade class is down the hall, Jan. No, but we come to Revelation at the end. Revelation 21, 22, what do we find? The serpent has been cast out of creation. There's no longer any curse. And now the dwelling of God is with men and he shall dwell with them and they will be his people. This story is moving to a conclusion. And Revelation says this, going back to verses one through three, verse three, blessed is the one, and by the way, the word blessed is used seven times in Revelation. Seven times, Revelation says, blessed are you. You'll benefit, fortunate are you. If you do this or hear this or listen to this, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. You remember what Jesus preached at the beginning of his message, or beginning of his ministry? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. That message was from the beginning, Jesus' sermon. Repent, because the kingdom is at hand. It's among you, it's here. You might not see it, but if you look out the window to the greater reality, it is here. But Revelation says, blessed are those not who hear it, but who do what? They keep it, they obey. Now, I know that because I have three kids that sometimes I ask the question, are you listening to me? 
And they'll say, yeah, dad, we're listening to you. But I know if they're not really listening to me, because what I mean is not, do you have this audible sensation that's coming in and all of a sudden it's working with the synapses of your brain and you've heard the words that I've said. Ultimately, are you listening to me needs to translate into, are you obeying? Revelation's concerned about our discipleship. It reveals Jesus, but it reveals our own discipleship and following him as well. Rick actually said this, Revelation is more interested in helping us make choices than it is about making, us, making charts. And, and so let's focus in on what it reveals about Jesus and what it reveals about our own discipleship. Okay, but why is Revelation written this way? It's kind of weird. I mean, I don't know if that's appropriate to say or not, but it's kind of odd. It's different. We're not used to dragons and, and those kinds of things being in biblical narrative. And so it's one of those things we read and we go, okay, how do I take this? I mean, wouldn't it be better if Revelation just didn't have all the symbols and, and all of the, the, the story and it just got right to the point and had straight bullet point truth statements that we could just dissect and digest and live out? Maybe. I mean, God knows us. And how he created us. Imagine me taking my seven-year-old to bed and saying, honey, I'm going to read you a manual from the dishwasher. She'd be like, no way, right? She might fall asleep. But God knows us. He created us. What does my daughter want? She wants a story. Dad, put a dragon in it. Put a princess in there. Dad, make it, make it something that, that has conflict and tension. God knows us. He created us. He created us. And, and so kind of in our own like modern scientific era that we're living in, I know that sometimes we like short statements that we can put in a box and dissect and pull them back out and examine them and put them back in and that it all makes this linear sense to us. But God teaches us through revelation in a way that is poetic, in a way that is story, in a way that is artistic, in a way that is similar to how we view lyrics and art and poetry. There is more than one way to experience and communicate truth. And this comes out in all of those ways. That's one of the things that causes us to come to Revelation and go, wow, God knows us. And so he teaches us through this form very intentionally. Now, when it comes to the style of Revelation, for John's audience in the first century world in 95 AD, this was actually something they were familiar with. So what we want to talk about just for a moment is the fact that this is a particular kind of writing that was very popular during John's, during John's time. In fact, 200 BC to 200 AD, that time frame, this kind of writing called apocalyptic literature, which is really what the word revelation means, it reveals, this kind of literature was common. It's, it's really what we could phrase, here's maybe a good phrase to put down, it's, it's a phrase uh, that would be called resistance literature. It's written by people and to people who are facing opposition, sometimes political opposition, religious opposition, and it's a way for them to look outside the window and say there's a greater reality to what's going on here. We're, we're used to interpreting genre based upon coming to different kinds. For instance, if I pick up a book and it's a fiction book uh, versus picking up a book that's a nonfiction book, my, my brain, because I, I know the difference, knows to use some different interpretive guidelines to understand that particular text. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, like science fiction, for instance, uh, should not be read the same way as I turn over to a historical biography and I read that historical biography. If I were to interpret those two things the same way, I would be rather confused. And we are at times confused when it comes to Revelation 
because it's not something that's common when it comes to us understanding this particular kind of genre. Same thing can be happening when I'm flipping through uh, news stations. There are different kinds or genres of news stations, right? And we recognize there might be Fox News or CNN or Newsmax or History Channel or Sci-Fi or all these different TV stations, and they all require us to put on a little bit of a different interpretive mode to understand them. Same thing's true of email. Get an email, ding. I hope you don't have the sound that comes up when you get an email. Spam, scam, work, personal, solicitation, delete. Like we're used to interpreting things at a moment's notice. But because Revelation is a form of literature that was very common then but not as common now, it's one of those things that we have to just back up a minute and go, how would the original audience have understood the meaning of this book? John points this out, by the way. If you look and maybe you're taking notes in your Bible, I I want to point three words out. They're in your handout too. But John says the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is the word we get the word apocalypse from. It just means reveal. That's why revelation is revel, revel, reveal. Okay? It's revealing something, that greater truth through the window of the things that are going on. So right away, John goes, hey, this is that particular kind of literature that you're used to. Now, he uses two other words. Notice a little bit later, he talks about the prophecy. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the word of this prophecy. But then he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, it's a letter. So we find in this, this one book, three dominant, three dominant genres or kinds of literature that we need to pay attention to because all three of them help us understand how to understand this letter or how to understand this book. So apocalyptic literature, let me, let me give you a few things that are traits of this kind of literature that was common from 200 BC to 200 AD. Here's, here's number one, conflict. Conflict was a common trait. My friend Shane Wood, a colleague at Ozark Christian College says this, one in four verses have some component of conflict in them. What did I say? This was, this was written as, it's written as resistance literature. People who are in opposition who need to remember Jesus is on the throne. Conflict. Kingdoms, two kingdoms clashing with one another. Your will be done. We want to seek your kingdom. And yet there's a kingdom of this world. Visions are also often a part of, of this kind of literature as well. So oftentimes we're going to see John being led by an angel and the angel is going to say, behold or see. And this was common. And the the commonality would be these scenes back and forth of earth and heaven and back and forth this reality of what's going on. But another commonality would be songs. If you're jotting down notes, watch for all of the songs in Revelation. I'm just going to throw a bunch of them out there at you and just kind of rapid fire. You can't write them down. But Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, Revelation 11, Revelation 12, Revelation 14, Revelation 15, Revelation 16, Revelation 19 all have a song of worship. Why? Because worship when you're centered around God on the throne, is war. It's a declaration of allegiance. Songs are common in apocalyptic literature. And then this one shouldn't surprise you, symbols. Apocalyptic literature is full of symbols. And some of these symbols are difficult for us to understand. Are these symbols literal? Can I ask you a big question that sometimes we're going to have some conversations about? Are these symbols literal? That's a great question. If by literal you mean it's a symbol and it has a literal meaning behind it, then yes, these symbols are literal. There is a literal meaning to Revelation. But symbols are symbols. When I say, here's an example, bald eagle, what does that symbol communicate? 
Does it have any meaning behind the symbol? Well, I'm assuming it does. That for some of you, when I say bald eagle, even when we see a bald eagle, we think America. Now, can I throw out a few more? Uh, this is maybe a little bit of participation, with, which may be asking much, especially if you're online, by the way, watching from home. I'm going to throw out some symbols. Because we're used to interpreting symbols and recognizing there's a literal meaning behind them, but they're still symbolic. Uh, dove, what does it symbolize? Peace, thank you. Donkey. Oh, that's hard unless you put it next to an elephant. Donkey. Oh, now you get it. Okay. Elephant. You were like, where is this going, right? Okay, so we get this. Rainbow. Oh, symbol. Fish, like on the back of a car. Swastika. Symbols are powerful. And by the way, even that symbol has changed in its meaning from what it first meant. And so symbols are something that we find in the text. And the next question I have for you is this. Who gives meaning to symbols? Who gives meaning to the symbols that we find in Revelation? Beast and prostitute and dragon and 666, I said it and put it on the table. Well, the reality is, is I just threw out a bunch of symbols that you already knew the meaning to. Why? Because your context has given you the meaning to those symbols. John's audience, the seven churches, recognize these symbols in the same way you recognize the donkey and an elephant. Well, kind of. And they had meanings that were connected to these symbols. And many of these symbols are connected to the Old Testament. That's why it's somewhat dangerous for us to speculate by reading Revelation with the newspaper in front of Revelation rather than reading Revelation and allow it to make commentary on our world today. Because then we start seeing that vaccines equal this or that microchips equal this or that UPC labels equal this. I mean, it's just not changed. I've taught this over the past, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years, 20 years. And it's really, the headlines just changed, but the way we're speculating has not changed at all. The symbol had to have meaning to them. Most of the time, where do we go to find the meaning of the symbol? We go to the Old Testament. And I recognize not all of us, myself included, are as familiar with the Old Testament as what John or someone who is, is perhaps grown up with that same faith background in, in the Hebrew Bible would have grown up with. But it's important for us to dive into what does the Bible teach us about the Old Testament? Paul says this, the Old Testament is able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. What does Jesus do as he's resurrected in, in Luke? Jesus takes the Old Testament, he opens it up and he shows that the Old Testament has been pointing the direction to him all along. So it's not a surprise that John recognizes that he, and, and that recognizes the Old Testament, but uses some of these symbols and, and shows them to be pointing to Jesus and pointing what he's doing in the world. Uh, one of my teachers said this, out of the 404 verses in Revelation, which I don't know that you've counted yet, I'm assuming you have not, but out of the 404 verses in Revelation, 278 of these verses have some sort of an Old Testament allusion in them. That's, if you're counting, 69% of Revelation. You see why it's important for us to understand the connections to the Old Testament and not just import our own images and our own stories. And so there's images like lampstands and lambs and birds and plagues and seals and beasts and serpents and trees and birds and prostitutes. And we can find them all in the Old Testament and, and translate, here's what these things mean to God's people. There's places like Babylon and Jerusalem and Sodom and Egypt and the Euphrates and even Megiddo as in the Armageddon. Although Megiddo's not really on a mountain, there's some things going on there. But there's meaning behind all of those. That's already part of the symbol. There's people like Balaam and Jezebel and Elijah and Moses and Daniel and the 12 tribes of Israel. 
There's stories. There's stories that echo, that sound familiar. You can hear the soundtrack of the Old Testament stories playing in Revelation if you're listening. Now, we do the same thing, by the way. For instance, can I throw out some movie quotes and see if you can guess which movie these are? Just allusions, quotes to movies. Because my hunch is this, you'll hear it and the entire movie will become present in your memory. Luke, I am your father. What is it? Okay, some of you know which, like, which Star Wars it is. I have no idea, right? Okay, shaken, not stirred. Some, okay, some of you have to know that. Okay, some of you won't admit some of these, probably, right? Um, we're not in Kansas anymore. Here's looking at you, kid. Yeah, I've never seen this movie, Casablanca. Um, I'm going to make him an offer he just can't refuse. The Godfather, I've never seen that movie either, sorry. And then, you can't handle the truth. A few good men, my precious. See, what happens with each of those, if you've seen the movies, is that I can have one small illusion, and all of a sudden, memories of this greater story flood back. What's the percentage that we just said? 69%? 69% of the verses in Revelation have some sort of a symbol or an illusion, a phrase, like we just had from a movie, a phrase that would cause John and his audience to go, I remember that story. Why is that important? Because now we're living in the story. You're a part of this grand epic narrative that is God's story and what he's doing in the world. And John, through this, these visions and through this message that has come from Jesus, is writing the believers into the story. They are a part of what God is doing in the world. And, and this, this type of literature heightens that awareness, just like a narrative does, like a story does, like a song does, like a poem does. So when we come to Revelation, we go, I don't really like Revelation because it's kind of confusing to me. Have you listened to some of the songs you like? Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. What in the world is it talking about? Sometimes some of the things that we love that are art, we don't fully comprehend them, but it still translates meaning to us that's highly valuable. Revelation does the same thing through picture and symbol and image. So one more image or symbol we need to talk about is numbers. And, and we have a little bit of time to talk about this. I want you to write down a few numbers to just start searching for them as you read Revelation. Can I, can I give you a few? Here's number one. It's, not the number one, sorry, that's confusing. Um, it's the number seven. This one shouldn't surprise you. John loves the number seven, even in his gospel. If you read the gospel of John, seven I am statements. I'm the bread of life. I'm the vine. I'm the good shepherd. Seven of them. Uh, scholars suggest that there's seven miracles that lead up to the final miracle, which is the resurrection in John's gospel. It's unique to John's gospel. John likes the number seven. We have seven churches. Now, you don't have to write all these down. I'll give some of these to you in later lessons. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven thunders that's not revealed to us. Revelation is not going to reveal everything you want to know. That's frustrating. I get it. It's not God's job to tell you everything. Just like it's not my job to tell my kids everything. But there's other sevens as well. For instance, we could look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Maybe you want to turn there in your Bible. Um, I'll read it for you. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and around the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, or myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. Here's where I want to get to, verse 12. They were saying in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Now I want you to start counting words. 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive what? Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven. Okay, John does this throughout this letter. Seven things are no more in Revelation 21, 22. Why? Because there's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more darkness, no more temple. Why? Because seven matters to John. Now, as we start to dive into this, we'll recognize that the number seven oftentimes represents or is a symbol of completeness or wholeness, something that is complete. And, and we'll weigh this number because in, rather than counting a symbol, you weigh the symbol. You recognize what the symbol represents. So can I give you another number? Because you'll start looking for that one. You'll start counting every time there's a list. Because sometimes it's, and he judged the great and the kings and the mighty and the servants and the slaves. And he goes on and you're like, seven, everyone. Yeah, it's there. And it's not hidden. See, revelation is not a, a hidden. What does the word revelation mean? Revealed. John's like, here it is. Now, there's not everything that's revealed. Sometimes God says, don't tell them this or don't say, say this. The seven thunders is an example. Here's another number. Three and a half. Some of you are doing math. How is three and a half maybe connected to the number seven? It's exactly half of the number seven. Now, we'll, we'll weigh this number rather than count it, but sometimes this number is used in connection to years. And so sometimes it'll be counted out as a number of days. You'll, you'll see that counted out as a number of days. But if seven is completeness, three and a half kind of just isn't. It just kind of represents it's not complete. And oftentimes the connection of three and a half is when we're going through times of difficulty. Like it's not all there is. It's, it's going to be a season that ends. Now again, it's a symbol. And I know you want to count it because we like the scientific method. We are in the West after all, although postmodernity is getting rid of some of that. But we want to dissect the book of Revelation and science it. No, it's art, it's, it's poetry, it's literature, it's writing, it's truth, it's literal. There's a literal meaning behind it, but we have to understand the communication style, the genre. Okay, I'll give you another number, six. It's definitely not seven. And you put six, six, six together, and all of a sudden we're going, what's that all about? Now, we'll get to that later. You have to come back, right? So we find the number six. It's not as common as the number seven or the number three and a half or this next number, which is the number four. Over and over again, you'll see four connected to, and maybe I should just ask you to find the connection yourself, creation. Uh, there are four creatures, four uh, angelic beings that worship around the throne. They look different. They look each like a created part of creation, and they worship God. All of creation comes and worships around the throne. Well, they'll talk about four winds and four corners. And four, even in lists, watch it in the lists. Here's an example, Revelation 5.9. Going back to that page we were at just a second ago. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. You were slain. By your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe, language, people, nation. What's he saying there? All of creation. It's just, it's symbol. It's poetic. It's artistic. But it conveys a literal truth. Jesus, you are worthy to have all of these people worship you because you've ransomed them all of them, over the, the entire creation. Okay, another number, number 12. This one shouldn't surprise us as much. We have the Old Testament tribes of Israel. We have the 12 disciples. We have 12 months of the year. I mean, you just find these numbers everywhere and you start looking. I, 
I don't want you to think there's a secret Bible code in Revelation. I don't, I don't think that there is. I think it is revealing to us these pictures that we need to remind us of the discipleship and of the truth of who Jesus is in the world. And so we'll find this number 12 oftentimes representing God's people. Sometimes we'll see 12 and 12 equaling 24, and we'll go, okay, what is that? I, I don't know. Here's my best guess. All of the Old Testament people, 12 tribes, all of the New Testament people represented by the 12 apostles, all of us worshiping around the throne of God. I don't know. But that number 12 seems to be a picture over and over again, 12 gates at the, in, the, in the Revelation 21, 22 in heaven with the 12 names of the apostles, 12 foundations, 12 stones, and we'll get to the stones. But even the 12 stones on the priest represented people and the 12 tribes. Number 12, over and over and over again. So we'll see that, that these numbers play a role in our understanding of the text. Okay, that is, and, and I'm looking at our time, we're, we're done right around 7.50, so we have some time. That is apocalyptic literature, and it's an introduction to some of the traits of apocalyptic literature. You can read other examples of it, but some of the things that cause us to say, that's a haunted house, as my, my friend would say, Matt Proctor has, has said that about Revelation, I don't want to go in there, it's a haunted house. That's because of this style of writing. And if we begin to understand it, I think what my, my other teacher said, Dr. Robert Lowry, he said, I want this to be meaningful for us, not just mysterious. If we can start to unpack that genre or that kind of literature, it really does help us to come at this with a frame of understanding that reveals our heart and reveals Jesus. And we walk away going, I don't understand everything, but I do know how I'm called to live. And I do know some truths about what, the world, what is really going on in the world. And that's the reason why we're coming. Again, I have failed. If you merely walk out of this class and only understand more about Revelation and not more about Jesus and not more about your own discipleship. So let's talk about not just apocalyptic literature, but that second word. Um, John uses the word prophecy in verse three of chapter one. Let's talk about prophetic literature. One of the, I'm just gonna say may, maybe mistakes uh, one of the assumptions we have of prophecy is that it always is just telling the future. Like we think of a prophet and we, I don't know, I mean, we have all these images from even movies and literature, right, that come up of someone who's a prophet. But prophecy, we just studied Jonah on Sunday mornings here at church. Prophecy often was a, a future forecast of something that would happen if we don't change our behaviors or response to God's message today. So in many ways, prophecy is not just a telling of the future, it is a, a message that we need to hear today because of what the future may or may not hold. Revelation is similar to that. So if the case of the Ninevites in, in Jonah, repent or I'm going to bring judgment on Nineveh. They repented. The judgment didn't come. The, was the prophecy a failure? No. Because the goal was repentance. The goal was a change of heart. And, and that's true when it comes to prophecy throughout the Old Testament, is that we find that over and over again, the primary uh, reason behind prophecy is repentance or changing a direction of one's life, or perhaps even finding hope, even though things are difficult, that God will bring about the hope that we're anticipating. So Isaiah is a good example, that even though you're in exile, even though you're in Babylon, God is going to restore the kingdom. God is going to send his Messiah so you can hold on to hope. And it changes the way that they live in Babylon. So when it comes to this, uh, an example that I want to talk about is the, the word tribulation. I want you to look at Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. 
We'll talk about this a little bit more over the next few weeks, like everything I've said thus far. But John here writes, and he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Notice what John is saying. I am experiencing what? The tribulation. Okay. You might want to just meditate on that verse a little bit, depending on your background and how you've approached Revelation before. Now, again, I want to approach it humbly, but I also want to allow the text to tell me what it says, not me impose what I want it to say on the text. John is saying he was going through a tribulation. And throughout church history, various contexts have gone through tribulations. These seven churches are going through a time of tribulation. Why is it then that at times we have believed or taught that there is this tribulation that's out there that we're not experiencing now or that no one's experiencing now? You remember what I said about C.S. Lewis talking about chronological snobbery? Some of that has to do with our own comfort and experience of comfort that we're not experiencing persecution, that at times we're, not, we're the inside group and not the outside group that all of a sudden it changes the framework of how we understand this literature. But John is saying, no, I'm going through this now. And what does he need? What do they need in this world of tribulation, this world of chaos? They need a reminder that Jesus is on the throne, apocalyptic literature, but that Jesus is coming back and that they need to repent and follow him. But they can have this hope that is in him as well. So we find that, that prophetic literature oftentimes comes with a warning, like the Ninevites, that brings us to repentance, or an encouragement that encourages us toward faithfulness or toward hope. We'll talk about more about pro prophecy as we walk through, but let me get to the third area. This is also a letter. That's, again, not going to surprise us. John writes, and he says, to the seven churches. That's John 1, or Revelation 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Can I tell you an interesting thing about these seven churches? You may or may not have heard this, but when John lists these seven churches, and we'll see them in chapters two and three, is you can, you can draw pretty much a circle in Asia Minor. I have the map kind of pictured in my head. That's why I'm drawing it this way. For you, it's actually kind of this way. But these seven churches form a mail route, what looks like a, a delivery route of how this book would have been delivered to them. John is on exile because of his faith. He's an old man by now. I mean, I learned a long time ago to say older man, because you might be the same age as John. Um, he's an older man now, and, and he's in exile. He's separated. There's a sea between him and the people that he loves, and he wants them to be faithful and to know that Jesus is still on the throne no matter what. And so he sends this letter across the chaos of the sea, and it's delivered to each of these seven churches. But we're going to see in chapter 2 and 3 that these seven churches have really kind of three things that they share in common, three things they're struggling with. I'll give you the words now. We'll talk about them later. Number one is persecution, suffering. Number two, I'm going to use the word compromise. Now, next to that, you might write this phrase, cultural seduction. They're buying into what Babylon has to offer, what Rome has to offer, what the culture has to offer. There's a place where Jesus cries out to his people, come out of her, talking about the culture of Babylon, talking about the prostitute, the image, the metaphor of a prostitute. Come out of her, my people. It's a very vivid metaphor, picture of God's people no longer faithful to God. 
these seven churches are going through persecution, compromise. And here's the third one. Boy, listen to this one. Complacency. Church in Ephesus was a church where John spent some time. Paul spent years there. Church tradition said Mary, the mother of Jesus, spent time in Ephesus. I mean, can you imagine that kind of church? Paul preached here. And I've traveled around to churches all over the country, and sometimes we have like pulpits and signs that say, this person preached here. John preached here. John, the beloved disciple. But what does Jesus say to Ephesus? Repent. Do the things you did at first. You've forsaken. You've lost your love. Complacency. Sardis has fallen asleep. Now, the interesting thing about their history is they actually did fall asleep and they were invaded twice in their history. <laughs> and I think Jesus is like, you're just like your city. You're falling asleep when you should be awake. And those three things culturally are still things that we as believers struggle with when we don't see Jesus on the throne and we don't see this revealed Jesus. Persecution at times. It can be social. Jesus says, blessed are you when people, say ins- when people insult you, say all kinds of evil things against you. It can be financial. It can be physical. They're experiencing all of those. Compromise, complacency. Now, John's writing to churches. We've already said this. It's a letter, but I think it's important for us to mention here. He's writing to how many churches? Seven. I don't know this because, again, the number, we have to weigh the number. The number is a symbol. But I think there's something to the fact that John's writing to seven churches. And in these seven churches, we find these three common things that it looks like throughout the generations of the church, every generation has said, hey, that's me as they look in the mirror. I think in many ways, these seven churches, yes, they're seven literal churches, but John and Jesus through this message also goes, but these seven churches and their experiences and the message to them, it's all the churches. It's every believer. This is a message that's to us. And so as we dive in and recognize that this is a letter, we recognize that they are going through tribulation, tribulation, that they are going through these difficulties, that they are facing the temptation to compromise, that they are facing the temptation to be complacent in their faith if they forget the spiritual realities that are behind this earthly existence. And so these seven churches are, are called to overcome there's some historical background that I want to, in our last couple minutes here, just kind of put out there and then wrap all of this up in one kind of final statement. I mentioned earlier that Revelation is written around the, the date 95 AD. I also mentioned that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. There's a lot of questions. Is God still on the throne? Is God still with his people? The temple represented the presence of God. Is God still with us? Does he still listen? Does he have the power to save us? Domitian was the emperor, if our dating of this document is correct. Domitian was someone who requested or required, it depends on who you ask, that the people around him call him by this label, be addressed as our Lord and our God. It started with Caligula and it kind of passed on to Nero, the emperor Caligula and Nero, but Domitian especially um, used 
the worship of the emperor, which is more of an Eastern thing rather than a Roman thing, as propaganda in Rome to test whether or not people were loyal to Rome and to build up loyalty and allegiance to Rome, allegiance to his own throne. They started using slogans like peace, victory, as in like overcomer, savior. You can look at the coins and look at the temples that worship the emperor Domitian and other, others like him and public ceremonies. And you'll find that some of the symbols that we find in this text were symbols that believers were facing in the world that they were living in. And the questions, could you imagine the questions? Is it Domitian who's on the throne? When the temple was destroyed, Josephus tells us that 300 people were crucified in and around the city of Jerusalem. People were, were swallowing gold to escape the city and they were being cut open so that that gold could be extracted from them. The, the entire moment was this dark moment where it seemed like the world was falling apart and people are asking the question, is God still in control? Is the whole world falling apart? Pockets of persecution were breaking out. It doesn't seem to be something that was um, empire-wide in Rome, but they do seem to be locally happening. We have a letter in 112 where Pliny is writing to Trajan, and they're asking, how do we deal with these Christians? Well, we ask them to worship, and if they won't denounce the name of Jesus, if they won't sacrifice to the emperor, then we will kill them because they are, in many ways, treasonous. They are insurrectionists. They are those who are opposing the kingdom of Rome. And there's these mounting pressures so you can imagine how they needed this message. Revelation reveals Jesus. It reveals the center of our worship, the spiritual dimensions to these earthly realities, the true source of our hope. And ultimately, it reveals the end of this story where Jesus is faithful to his promises. And it calls us, it beckons us in this daily existence that we live to overcome, to overcome and to worship. Well, friends, I'm gonna close in prayer. On the last page, you can see kind of the, the plan that we have to study the book of Revelation over the next several weeks. Uh, these resources will be available to you. I believe on Friday, they are going to be adding a page to the church website where all of the handouts can be found. If you happen to miss a week here in person, you can go back and you can find those handouts as well as the videos that will be recorded and streamed live. Uh, we'd love for you to, to not only jump into this study as we progress, but also ask questions. So let me add this last thing on. If you have a question that you'd like to ask, I recognize with the format of us streaming live and kind of the format that we have in here with the spacing, that you may not have the opportunity to ask every question. I'd love to have you email me questions. And then what I will do is I will come back next week and address some of those questions. I will also be available after our time up here for a little bit each time to, to dialogue about some of those things and to learn from you as well. So let me give you my email address. Okay. My email address, going back to the first page of your handout, is my last name. Why go back to the first page? Because it's spelled on the first page, right? Dalrymple is a hard name to spell, but here's my email address. Dalrymple.jim at occ.edu. And I'd love to dialogue with you over the next several weeks as we go through this study. Uh, even if you catch me in the hallway on a Sunday morning, uh, I'll sit down with you and we'll have a conversation about the book of Revelation. Thanks for coming this evening. Let me say a quick prayer and we'll be done. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to study this as your body of believers, as your church here. God, as you write to these, uh, you send these messages, as, as you write to these seven churches, 
I believe that you also speak to us. And so God, help us to open our eyes and open our ears, open our hearts to Jesus. God, help us to look through the window and see this greater reality. But also, God, let us look in the mirror and see the transformation, the new creation that you want in us through your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.